This weekend was our, um, our big fall event, uh, Disciple Now. Um, for those of you not familiar with what Disciple Now is, it's like a weekend retreat, but we don't go anywhere. Uh, what we do instead is we uh, take the um, youth group, we break them up by um, gender and by, um, and by grade, and we put them in host homes for the weekend, and they have a small group uh, Bible study leader um, in their host home with them. We bring in a large group leader who, uh, this year was Matthew Burns, um, who, of course, um, went to church here. Um, before he went off to Grand Rapids, Michigan to go to college and seminary. And uh, we have competitions between the houses. We have lots of games. We have winners. We have lots of food and lots of snacks. And um, I really believe in it. I think it's a wonderful event um, because it really brings the church family together. The uh, relationships, um, hopefully, that are built between the host parents um, who are responsible for feeding the students, taking care of them, providing them with a place to sleep, handling the disciplinary matters. Hopefully, those relationships that they build with the kids last for a really long time. And we had a wonderful group of houses this year. We had the Cornets and the Pattons and the Wilsons and the Mahaffeys were our host homes. And um, we had a great group of our small group leaders as well. Uh, Chris Cornett led in his own house, so he had double duty. He had to uh, feed and provide um, living space for and do the small groups in his own house, as well as Kristen Crawford and um, Katie Arita and Carter Martin came back from Liberty University this year to help us with it as well. So we had a great team of people, and um, I hope it was a really meaningful experience for the kids. I'm too tired to know at this point um, what happened, if anything happened. I don't know where I'm at right now. Um, but uh, it was really um, a wonderful experience, and uh, many of you have been involved with Disciple Now in the past. And thank you for your prayers and for your support um, of our youth group. We have a disproportionately large youth group at our church. Um, they say the average is 10 to 15% of a church is middle school and high schoolers, and our church is 25%. Um, because of the demographics of the area, a large percentage of our church um, is youth. Um, and so thank you so much for, um, for supporting um, your youth ministry and, uh, and praying for us as we, uh, as we do our best um, to support you all um, um, as you have that wonderful task of raising teenagers. Um, and I myself intend to resign from youth ministry as soon as I have my own teenager um, because it looks really hard, I'm not going to lie, um, to raise teenagers. So um, thank you for being wonderful parents and sending us wonderful kids. We have themes for our Disciple Nows. Um, and as I was preparing the theme for this weekend and praying about um, our students and what it's like to be a middle schooler or a high schooler, the thing that kept coming around is that American evangelicalism is in a trap of cultural, casual Christianity. Casual and ceremonial Christianity, where we compartmentalize our lives. And for adolescents, this is particularly hard because the adolescent brain tends to compartmentalize anyways. Um, that's why you can have um, you know, really sweet kids in one setting, and then the same kid can be a completely different kid. And you know, you know what I'm talking about, those of you who have had teenagers? <laughs> um, a kid can, you know, if it's, it's part of their psychological development is they have trouble um, having the same set of values in all aspects of their lives. And what that leads to is a, a life um, and a Christianity full of contradictions, full of um, coming on Sunday mornings, being very participatory in youth events, um, you all sending me your kids and their little angels when they're here, and then when they get home, maybe not so much sometimes. Um, or maybe they get around the wrong group of friends and their values um, change when they're around certain groups of friends. Um, for example, the way that your kids talk to you is probably not the way they talk to their friends. Um, they probably use a different set of words, a different set of vocabulary around you 
than they do around their friends. And there's nothing inherently sinister about it. It's just that's how it is. But here's the thing is, as adults, we're probably not so different, are we? Is that fair to say? That our religion, our lives, we can compartmentalize just as easy. We can walk in and out of things just as easy as a high schooler does. And I find myself as a youth director, as an adult with kids of my own, having to ask myself, am I setting an example? (laughs) Well, of course I'm setting an example. Is it the right one that I'm trying to set? Am I guilty of compartmentalizing my life to where I am a casual Christian who can walk in and out of Christianity without having my conscience picked at all? I think if we're honest with ourselves, maybe we're not at the bottom of the slope yet, but American evangelicalism is in a very dangerous place right now where our religion is becoming increasingly more and more compartmentalized. And as I was praying through this, I kept coming back to our text today in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. This is in uh, page 484 of your pew Bible. Um, I'm being sure to use the pew Bible, so if that's what you're looking at, it's the same words. It says, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? says the Lord. I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hand in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. I'll continue reading verses 18 and 19 and 20. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. They are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat bread, you will eat the best from the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Thus far the word of the Lord. Let us pray. God, I ask that you would strengthen me Yet one more time, God, to deliver your word. God, may you be gracious in opening up our hearts and our ears to hear what you would have to say. God, you are good to us, and you draw near to us as we draw near to you. And we thank you for that. And we say this in your son's name. Amen. Who are these people who are the rulers of Sodom and the people of Gomorrah? They are the people of God, Israel. And what is it that they have done to make God so angry? (laughs) I think it's clear here that God is angry, that God is upset. And what is it that they have done here? It's apparent from the passage here that what has happened is the ceremonies of Israel's religion have outlived the heart of Israel's religion. That what we have here is a set of ceremonies, a set of holidays, a set of feasts, of burnt offerings still being offered up, of sacrifices still being offered up, and we have God saying, stop. 
it no longer means anything. The ceremonies have become meaningless because they are no longer indicative of hearts that seek after God and hearts that desire to be in relationship with God. Instead, the ceremonies themselves have become the end unto themselves. The people of God take their religion with them to worship, to service, to sermon, to ceremony, yet not with them throughout the rest of their lives. And what does God call this? He calls it meaningless. Absolutely meaningless. The offerings that are offered up to God are meaningless. Ceremonial religion, where the ceremonies are not indicative of hearts that seek to follow God, is empty religion and therefore no religion at all. It's gotten to the point in Judaism now, in modern times, um, that there is something called, uh, there, are, there, are, there is atheistic Judaism. And that's not a weird thing to say. That many um, people who are, who are Jewish, it is an ethnic and cultural identification and has absolutely, positively nothing to do with religion at all. As a matter of fact, they would declare themselves as being atheist even though they are Jewish. You'll see this, it's very common for this to happen. There are um, Hasidic Jews who still practice um, Judaism and they believe in the one God, but there is a larger proportion of Judaism that is completely cultural. It no longer means anything. And as we look at that example, that is what is absolutely positively terrifying to me as I look at how easy it is for us to compartmentalize our religion. Why? Because it's all heading down that path to where our religion is no longer a relationship with God, but rather a part of our lives that we place God into because we don't trust him with the rest of it. And where does it always lead? It always leads to empty cultural faith. And I personally find that to be absolutely terrifying because it's so easy to compartmentalize. I was having a conversation with a mom the other day that on Sundays after I am, um, I'm usually on this side, it's good to see this side of your heads. Um, normally I just see the other side of your heads. Um, but it's, it's so easy for me on Sunday mornings after um, leading worship on Sunday morning, and then I'm back at the church by 3.30 to hang out with the high schoolers, and then we do a lesson um, um, with the high schoolers, and then lead worship there. We have conversations afterwards, and maybe I'll meet with uh, Matt Bavard, who's a, you know, a volunteer of mine you know, who I'm really close to, and, and then I go home, and I just want to turn my brain off. And I think to myself, I haven't fed myself spiritually. I haven't spent any time in, in prayer with God just for myself, you know? And, and, and you know what? There are times I just, I just want to go numb and watch ESPN and eat snacks. And just, and just you know what? You know what, God? God, thank you for a day of thanks. But I'm going to go do my me time now. Why, God? Because I don't trust you at 9.30 p.m. on a Sunday night to be enough for me. God, can you just go to the other room and read, and I'm going to go to this room and read, and we can spend some time apart. It's so easy to be like that. I was talking to um, a, a guy who says, it's so hard for me, he says, to, uh, you know, to take God with me to work. And, and I say, well, that's not hard for me. You know, the hard part for me is taking God home you know, at times. You know, that it's easy for me to want to compartmentalize 
my life. Yet how can we tell if religion, as we're practicing it, is only casual and ceremonial? I I don't think we're at a point where there is such a thing as the the evangelical Christian atheist. I don't think we're at that point yet in in the history. I hope we never get there, and that's why we want to kind of try to ward these things off before we get there. But nobody that I've ever met says, I'm an evangelical Christian atheist. So how can we tell, if we're not at the bottom, uh, if we're getting there or not? How can we tell if our religion has become casual in our own lives and in, the, and in the, the broader scope of the evangelical church? First of all, we learn in verses 13 through 15 that the decrees of God can be heard and proclaimed but not obeyed. It says this, Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Why? Your hands are full of blood. What happens at that point is the ceremony, we are trusting that the ceremony is what matters. That we can maintain hands that are full of blood as long as we're still going through the works and the actions and the ceremonies. That is an indication that our souls might be heading towards casual Christianity or heading towards casual Christianity. That what we do on Sunday mornings, the pictures that we paint through communion, through worship, through baptism, through receiving the preached word of God into our hearts from outside of ourselves. It is the casual Christian heart that can sit through all of that, say amen in church, and have no effect on Monday morning. We just affirmed this. I loved this. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have you talk back to me um, because that's what the high schoolers do and that's what I'm comfortable with. And, and please afford me that comfort. Um, but we just, we just talked about you know, communion. And we asked the question, does the Lord's Supper add anything to Christ's atoning work? What's the answer? No, it doesn't, right? No, Christ died once for all. That the Lord's Supper to us is a grace given to us because it's a picture of remembering Jesus Christ and the work that he did for us on the cross. It is us remembering and being reconciled to God, having to be reconciled to one another as well. It is a picture of hearts that seek to be in relationship with God through remembering the sacrifice of Christ. It is a celebration of a real thing. And it only becomes a rote ceremony when we count on the ceremony itself to be what matters and not the heart behind it. This It's hypocrisy. And as such, in casual Christianity, hypocrisy is callously tolerated as we look to the ceremonies in and to themselves as being corrective of our hearts rather than a sign of how we are in the inward being. What did we read from our question today? If unrepentant hearts eat and drink, what do they eat and drink upon themselves? You have to answer back to me. It's right there in the bulletin. Condemnation, judgment. That we are eating and drinking condemnation and judgment upon ourselves if we partake in communion with hearts that are unrepentant. And doesn't that sound a lot like what God is so angry about in Isaiah 1? We cannot compartmentalize and categorize our faith because it ceases to be anything more 
than a set of cultural rituals that declare that God is in here, but he's not good enough for me out there, really. I trust God in here, but I don't trust God out there. Is this starting to make sense a little bit? For me, I'm getting convicted again. Two sermons. I, you know, that's the hard thing about two services is I get to be double convicted. Also, we begin to lose our blessings as we lose association with God, as our religion becomes casual. Now, in Israel, this meant the blessings of safety and strength, um, which safety, by the way, is, is not um, a modern promise of the gospel. Um, that's, a, that's another sermon for another day. Uh, but safety is not a modern promise of the gospel because Jesus himself, obviously, um, was not safe, and he was perfectly obedient, nor any of his apostles who either faced death or exile to a man. But it also meant, and continue to means, continues to mean this, that in, in an area where, where religion is casual and ceremonial, corruption reigns, and the world around us becomes a more dangerous place. Um, the church, today as Israel was then, would cease to be a light in a dark place, and eventually begins partnering with darkness. And we see this in 21 through 23 in chapter 1 of Isaiah. It says, See how the faithful city has become a harlot. She once was full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your choice wine is diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels, companions of thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. So the church is is not only irreverent, but in terms of of our effect in the world, we become irrelevant. That the church that is casual, the church that believes in God inside a building and inside compartments of our lives, yet does not trust God for the rest of it, begins to look more and more and more like the world as our lack of trust becomes contagious into more and more and more of our lives. And I know it's easy for us to do this as Christians, to paint a tragic view of the world and to complain and to cloister ourselves into smaller and safer places. But we cannot read this passage of Scripture without realizing that as injustice reigns around us, we cannot read this passage and not say that we are, we, we are a part of the problem. We are a part of the problem. We can't say that we're not a part of the problem. That's what I'm trying to say. I'm so sorry. Casual, compartmentalized Christianity will partner with injustice. Because casual, compartmentalized Christianity is a friend to the ways of the world at different points in time. And we can't avoid it. There are objective, real ways that we can see this. Look, I'm not trying to just heap coals upon your head. I think there are objective ways that we can see that injustice is reigning around us. And that if we have been blind to our own casualness, it is time for us to have our eyes opened by the Holy Spirit and to wake up. Millions upon millions of lives have been claimed by abortion. Injustice reigns around us. 
So what is there to do? Is it to complain in the cloister? <laughs> or to trust the Lord and to move forward into having an effect in the world? Kevin and I, um, last weekend, went to the Global Missions Conference uh, down in Greenville, South Carolina, where um, a lot of the Mission to the World missionaries, the, uh, the, the Global Missions Organization of the PCA, gather, and we get to hear... Um, different talks from different missionaries. And it is amazing. Did you know that the Holy Spirit is still very living and active in the world, especially in the developing world? That the church is accomplishing wonderful things for the cause of the gospel and for the cause of justice in the world. We got to listen to this group called the International Justice Mission, which, by the way, is the coolest name for a Christian group ever. Okay, I want to be a part of that because I feel like you get a cape when you join the International Justice Mission, right? It's great. Did you know that there are Christians in the world who are helping to bring down sex trafficking cartels as we speak? That there are Christians in the world who are standing up to revolutionary armies and gangs of thugs in Uganda who are trying to take property from widows. That there are people working in the world in dangerous places. And the Holy Spirit of God is working in huge ways through people who say that God is the God of this whole world and he is the God in dangerous places. He is the God of my free time. He is the God of my, my, my time at work. He is the God of my relationships. And God, I want to clear your goodness through walking into danger and into hard situations and walking into situations where I might fail God, but I'm going to trust you by your Holy Spirit to sustain me. A wonderful story I got to hear was there's a man in Honduras um, who says he's about five, my height, five nine, a couple inches taller than me. Um, so, you know, not a big guy. Um, and was, was a gang shows up into town. He's in this little town in Honduras. And this gang shows up in town. It's MS-13, which we have that here um, in, um, in our area, too. And MS-13 is not a gang you want to mess with. And they decide 12 of them show up in town. And they start terrorizing the town. And this pastor says, I need to go talk to them. And, um, and he kept saying, you know, listen, I'm a coward. Like, I'm a coward. You know, the Spirit of God had to strengthen me. And, and um, this, this man and the, the pastor, whose name was um, Jesus Santos, um, they walk up and they, and they talk to these guys. They say, we want to, you know, want to talk to the leader of the gang. And, of course, they get drug out of the car and get guns put to their heads, you know, and say, what are you here for? What do you want? What do you want? He's like, we just want to talk, you know. We just want to talk. Within a few months later, three of those 12 gang members had had given their lives to Jesus. And the gang leader said, none of you can leave the gang unless you give your life to God. So now the gang member, the gang leader, is letting out gang members of the MS-13 in Honduras, which is the murder capital of the world, is letting gang members free if they want to give their life to Jesus. And it's happening in the world. Do we complain and cloister when it comes to a fallen, broken, unjust world? Or do we move forward trusting that the Holy Spirit of God is still working? Because He is. Look, I'm a youth director. (laughs) Not a missionary. I'm just trying to get my high school kids not to drink on the weekends. I'm trying to get my high schoolers to not be in the back seats of cars on Saturday nights with their girlfriend or their boyfriend. But what I want us to see is that God is good and great and glorious in all the aspects of our life. (laughs) Every single one of them. 
not just on Sunday mornings. We can trust God with the whole thing. The whole thing. And as we move forward, as we die to self and move forward as we repent of our sins and come to Jesus, we declare to a world that desperately needs to hear it that God is that good. He is that good. What are the consequences of a life lived this way? We're going to get to the really good news here in a second, I promise. This is a, I know it's a lot here, but we're we're going to get to the good news. It says, chiefly what we have to fear, hear me say this, chiefly what we have to fear in the casual Christian life is the judgment of God upon a fearless and rebellious generation. For the unrepentant cultural Christianity, what they have to fear most is not fear itself, but rather the judgment of God. Because casual Christianity, compartmentalized Christianity, where we're trusting in our ceremonies and trusting in our cultural norms is not Christianity at all. It is not repentance at all. I wrote this next point um, for parents, myself being a parent as well, that a consequence of this is that we communicate to the next generation that God is not good enough. That this is the scary thing about this, is that when I compartmentalize my life, I don't just fail to declare God's goodness to my children, I lie to my children about who God is. I am not just not telling my kids about God, I am giving them a false, bad, disappointing image of who God is. I don't know about you, but that terrifies me to think about. It terrifies me into realizing I need to live a humble life of repentance in front of my kids. To look at my daughters and say, and say, and say, It's daddy's fault, not God's. Because I don't want to lie to them. (laughs) And so much of what I say to my life, I'm afraid I'm lying to them about God. We have to fear the judgment of God. We have to fear that we would communicate to people the wrong things about who God is. And we also, as I've said before, have to fear slipping into complete and utter irrelevance that the narrative of the Christian gospel will be lost entirely. Why? Because it is left impotent, with nothing of value or strength to say in a world when we tell people that we need to supplement who God is with our own ideas. If we have God to fear, then what will save us from this day of judgment? We must repent and believe and understand that Jesus died for the casual and the ceremonial religionists so that they might have revival in their hearts. Jesus Christ is in the business of saving casual cultural Christians. Amen. Isn't that good news? That in a country of complete religious liberty, where we're free to be Christians and free not to be Christians whenever we choose to, at least culturally speaking, that God saves people just like us. And we have to look no further than in the Bible at the life of King Josiah. Um, King Josiah is my, my, um, 
my favorite king in the Bible. I love King Josiah. And this is why as King Josiah becomes king at eight or nine years old, he's a, he's a boy when he becomes king. And by the time that King Josiah becomes king, um, Israel is a very, uh, or Judah, excuse me, is a very wicked place. A very wicked place where they have turned away from the Lord. And um, they're going through the temple and they're, they're doing repairs in the temple. And all of a sudden they find this thing. You know, the people repairing the temple say, King Josiah, we found this thing, this, this, this uh, scroll. And you know what it is? It's the completely forgotten word of God. That they were in such a point, their religion was so culturally based, instead of heart based, so just a part of their, their ethnicity and not a part of their hearts, that the word of God itself had been lost. And Josiah reads the word of God, reads the law of God, and he rips his clothes and he repents. And Israel spends the next 30 years of Josiah's reign as a righteous nation. Now look, America isn't Israel. I'm talking about the church here. Okay? That the church is always ripe for revival. That God can get us when we seem like we're at our lowest, when we seem like we're at our furthest away. God can always come and get us and bring us back. Therefore, we repent and we believe that God is good. It says this in Scripture. It says, if we confess our sins, God is what? Faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to do what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And this God who has saved our souls and given us eternal life, can we not also trust him to give us a better way to live until then? Can we not also trust that this God, who we have entrusted the care of our souls to from here to eternity, can also not give us eternal purpose in this life that is greater than anything else the world could give us? Comfort be damned. Can we not trust him? No, indeed, the life that we have in Christ is so much better than just a set of rites of passage. No, it infects every aspect of our life to give us a better way to live, a more meaningful way to live. That is why saints of old lived and died for this. You don't give your life for something that isn't worth it. You see, this is why Christianity is never casual, because religion that costs us nothing is worth nothing. But religion that costs us everything must be priceless. That is why a man in a parable finds treasure in a field and sells everything he has to buy that treasure. Because it is of greater value to him and worth giving up everything else that he had. We must repent of our ceremonial Christianity and ask that the Spirit of God would fill us with courage and wisdom to seek his will in all manners of life. We are to stop feeling like helpless bystanders and be a light unto the world through the power of the gospel. To trust that the life we have in God is superior to the life lived with our own desires, with our own ceremonies in church, yet with our hearts in the world. And by the way, guess what gets redeemed in this whole process? The ceremonies. (laughs) Isn't that great? That communion all of a sudden never becomes rote. It becomes beautiful. And baptism becomes beautiful. And the singing of the praises of God, if we had to sing Amazing Grace every single week, we would never complain because God's grace is that amazing. So I say we march onward to the death of casual Christianity. 
realizing that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is Lord of all aspects and parts of our lives. May it be so through the power of the Holy Spirit and the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. God, these are wonderful and precious things. God, I pray that you would take a mess like myself, God, and redeem it enough God, that your truth was communicated this morning. God, may you spark revival in our hearts, God. God, not just in church services, God, God, but when we're alone with our own thoughts, God, revive our hearts then as well. And when we're with our peers, revive our hearts then as well. And when we're tired and exhausted and prone to sin, God, revive our hearts then as well. And you are good and gracious and wonderful to us. Let me say this in your son's name. Amen.